I've been reviewing and chewing on the message that we talked about last week, uh, all week long, and um, I'm the one who delivered it, <laughs> and it just affected me so much personally. To know that we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives to Him on that day is terrifying, to say the least, or at least to me, it's terrifying to anticipate that. But the great relief is the issue of the book of life, where figuratively speaking, the names of all those who belong to the Lord are written down in that book. By God's grace and mercy, I have hope, as in biblical hope, as in a confident, absolute expectation that my name is written in the book. What about you? See, like the Thessalonians, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and my need for Christ. And then when I heard the gospel, I turned to God in faith. I turned from idols. It's called repentance. And I continued to serve God, not perfectly, but loyally, while I'm even now waiting for Christ to come back and to deliver me from the wrath of God to come. And since the day I repented of my sin and believed the gospel, God continues to change my life. Now, some days I serve Him better than others. But over the years, I've learned that God's goal for me is to be like Jesus, and it's becoming an increasing reality. So I'm learning that everything that comes into my life is for the purpose, one purpose, that I might look like Jesus Christ when it's all said and done. But, but, but now, between now and the time that the Lord is going to glorify me, as He will for every person who knows Him and who He knows, comes the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to all face Him one day. In our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21, we're going to hear Paul's reaction of his anticipation, of his personal appointment with the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to hear about the ministry that God gave him to help many others to get ready for that judgment seat as well. And he calls this ministry the ministry of reconciliation. Now, in masterful terms, we have the privilege of hearing Paul describe in wonderful detail the ministry of reconciliation and what that's all about. But there's something I find in this passage a little bit odd. See, Paul declares that part of his ministry of reconciliation includes proclaiming this to the Corinthians, as in the Corinthian Christians. Why would Paul implore those who were already saved to be reconciled to God in his ministry of reconciliation? See, because reconciliation means to establish, reestablish friendly relationships after the relationship has been broken. So why is he saying this to these Corinthian Christians? We're going to find that out today. But to begin with, let's see Paul's response to his dreaded anticipation of Christ's judgment seat. And that's found in verse 11. So again, if you haven't done your Bible out, pull it out. You know, paper or pixel, doesn't matter. So pull it out. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and 21. And again, the first part of verse 11 we're going to talk about. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. We're going to stop right there. Knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, 
The word that's translated fear here is the Greek word phobos, which is where we get our word phobia from. It's described this way. Phobos, it refers to an emotion that we have when we sense alarm or we sense danger or we anticipate something negative. Like with every word, phobos carries with it a range of meanings. Now, phobos could be as intense as when the guards experienced the resurrected Jesus on resurrection morning, the guards that were guarding that tomb. Remember what happened to them? They trembled with fear. They passed out, and then they ran away. That was phobos, definitely. But on the other side of things, Phobos could actually mean or could be a proper uh, motivator to properly serve the Lord. While we lived in Lynchburg many, many years ago, uh, Kitty had befriended a pastor's wife, and whose watchword she said, she would say this often, over and over again, she would say, I'm too afraid of God to sin. Now, obviously, she did sin. Unfortunately, tragically, we all do. But I think it's a good watchword. You know, what do you think? But the point I want us to see is that Paul took this date at Christ's judgment seat very seriously with some trembling required. I don't know about you, but uh, I cannot imagine standing before the Lord Jesus on that day as my master for him to give, uh, ask me for an account without me trembling somewhat or maybe a whole lot. But now the Apostle Paul didn't just hunker down, though, and just kind of hide away and just kind of like being afraid that he would offend the Lord. No, he took action because he knew what it was like to fear the Lord. He oriented his life toward that day. In the middle part of verse 11, Paul begins to describe his actions in preparation for the judgment seat of Christ. And here's what he says. He persuades others. But now, of course, that begs the question, what did Paul persuade others of? Well, we all know the answer to that, don't we? Persuading others of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, for Paul, and indeed, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand something, don't we? We understand that everybody needs salvation. Everyone needs to get saved, salvaged from destruction. Because we're all in various stages of decay and brokenness, we all need the grace and the mercy and the power of God to come to our rescue. Now, Paul declared this to the church in Rome in Romans 1.16 when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Paul walked into Corinth the very first time, he looked around And he saw how many people were living in rebellion against the Lord. They were on their way to a Christless eternity. They were unsaved. They were on their way to hell. And so Paul began to preach. And he persuaded some in Corinth about the gospel. He planted gospel seed. And others came and helped and watered that gospel seed. And by God's grace and by God's increase, a church was born. But Paul persuaded many others besides those in Corinth as well about the gospel, the truth of God, the gospel of Christ. But he did not use gimmicks. He didn't use tricks or incentives. He didn't pass out free gifts. He didn't give them words just to make them feel good about themselves. 
What was Paul's message? What was the message he proclaimed about the gospel? Two words, Christ crucified. Doesn't go over well in our day, does it? It didn't go over well in their day either. Because, again, what was the perspective that Paul had in anticipation of somebody listening to this message? He said in 1 Corinthians, he said, it is a moronic message, a foolish one. It is a scandalous message, seemingly unworthy of the people living in the sophisticated, worldly, pagan city called Corinth. And he concluded something along these lines, I would imagine, if anybody was to come to Christ, it would have to be because of the power of the gospel. But remember what happened over the several years since the gospel was preached in Corinth and the church was formed. True Christians struggle with sin, and we all do. Some were attached to the church, but we're not true Christians. Sounds like many churches in our day, isn't it true? But there was something else afoot there in Corinth. False teachers entered into the fellowship and began to lead the true Christians astray. And Paul was brokenhearted, and he was angry. And he was seeing family members walk away from their spiritual home, and Paul was desperate to have them return, to come back. And as we know, to be part of God's family means to fully embrace the truth as our Lord defines truth. And to demonstrate also that we understand the truth and we're living by it, we are going to be living out the truth in our lives. We want to loyally follow Jesus. Again, not perfectly. We can't perfectly follow Jesus, but we can loyally follow Jesus. Now, these false teachers were making great inroads into winning the hearts and minds of the Christians in Corinth. And it's crucial we understand this thing. Crucial we understand that kind of backstory. This is what was going on as Paul was addressing this in this passage. And it's going to answer a lot of questions for us as we keep that in mind. And so as we've done uh, from time to time, I just want to walk us through this passage, kind of like a, a running commentary, so to speak. We're going to hear Paul plead with the Corinthian Christians to return to the Lord. And he's going to, at the same time, expose and attack the false teachers there in Corinth. So let's read together the, verse, uh, the rest of verse 11 through verse 12, and we're going to see Paul reminding his beloved Christians Corinthians to not believe the fake news about that the teachers were feeding the Corinthians about what they thought Paul was all about. Because they know, the Corinthian Christians know who Paul is, but these false teachers were trying to feed them a line. But what we are is known to God, and I hope, as in biblical hope, I'm absolutely confident that it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. So what's Paul saying? We can kind of explain it along these lines kind of this way. See, we're not playing games with you, communicating the truth of Christ in full measure of who he is what he's done in our interaction with him now and in the future and appealing to your conscience is who we are. 
Now, we're not like the false teachers who are appealing to everything else but the conscience and everything else but the heart. Paul, in a sense, is saying, now, I'm appealing to your conscience. I'm appealing to your sense of right and wrong. And I have absolute confidence and assurance that you know who we are and what we're all about. Corinthians, do you remember how we lived our lives in front of you? Let me remind you. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We've refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This was Paul's testimony to them as he wrote in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. Paul goes on, I would imagine him saying, our lives are an open book of integrity and honesty, aiming at the conscience in the sight of God. This ministry, Paul says, this gospel is much too valuable to play with. It has profoundly changed us and has profoundly changed you as well, Corinthians. What's as though, you know, Paul kind of was living his life inside out. He didn't want to cover up. He wanted to let people know what he was really like on the inside. But contrast Paul's testimony with the false teachers. What were they all about? They were all about emphasizing the outside, emphasizing appearance of things and not the inside. Though the false teachers falsely accused Paul to the Corinthians, Paul rightly accuses the false teachers of their character. But how do we know that the false teachers boast about outward appearances and not about what's in the heart? Let's look at verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Notice the accusation given by the false teachers. Paul, you're nuts. Paul, you're out of your mind, was their cry. Who wants to be around that? It's embarrassing. Can you imagine the false teachers saying that? Who have a spit and polish, and, and they know exactly what's going on. Their presentations are pristine. Paul, you're crazy. You're nuts. And you think maybe Paul may have kind of worn that accusation as like a badge of honor? I kind of think that maybe. Maybe Paul was thinking of this verse, Proverbs 29, 27. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. In other words, oil and water, it does not mix, does it? And regardless of what people think about Jerry Falwell, as in Jerry Falwell Sr., that is, he did say some pretty good things. He was also a very staunch supporter of pro-life issues. As he often said, it is good to have the right enemies. Indeed, we should welcome it when the wicked don't like us. I see some faces like, I don't know about that. We should welcome it. Now, of course, we don't want to give the wicked legitimate reasons to hate us when we're acting like jerks, right? But if we stand for the Lord in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, then our attitude ought to be, bring it. Bring it. Let's don't hide away. Let's bring it. But you know, this this accusation that they levied against Paul that he was crazy would not be the only time he would ever hear this. 
Other people said the same thing to him. And nor was Paul the only godly person accused of being crazy. You did know that, didn't you? (laughs) Remember when Paul gave his testimony to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26? Governor Festus blurted out these words as Paul was giving his testimony in Acts 26, verse 24. Festus, the governor, in a loud voice says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul, you are nuts, is what he said. And remember how even Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. They actually came to where he was. He was preaching up a storm, right? They came to him and they said, hey, Jesus, why don't you come on back here? You know, they probably want to take him home, you know, put him away in a corner somewhere so that he wouldn't bother the neighbors. But of course, the Lord would have none of that. He said, listen, I'm not leaving here. I've got work to do. Who are the members of my family? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? What did he say? Those who do the will of God are my mother, my brother, my sisters. And same with us. Someone who goes all out for Jesus will not be warmly welcomed by most people. Isn't that true? Especially now. See, the way the culture is today, unless you're woke, you're going to be canceled. We hear this over and over again. And followers of Christ don't have being woke as part of their perspective. Why is that? Simply put, followers of Jesus don't make wokeness a major part of their lives. Why? Because they're not woke, they're resurrected. Followers of Jesus understand that the only cure for the world's evil is the gospel, not social justice. See, the gospel affects the heart, not merely demands one's behavior conform to as has been said, the foolishness du jour. Now, I remember when I first came to Christ, I was in the military, I was in tech school, and my life just turned completely around, totally right side up. And so one of the first things I did, because this was back in the 70s, I would write letters and I would call home and things like that, and I would tell my family, you know, all six of my parents and my siblings, hey, my life completely changed. You know, Jesus is now my Lord and Savior, etc. And so when I went back to visit them while on leave, I got some strange responses back. You know, I was practically ignored by my family, all of them. And I couldn't figure it out. And I finally asked one of my family members, what's going on? And she told me this, they're all afraid to talk to you. They think you're a Jesus freak. And my, my foster parents thought I joined a cult. And my dad, he tried his level best to embarrass me in my new relationship with the Lord. But my life, as I said, turned right side up. And I seldom looked back since that day. But let me make a comment or two about those who boast about outward appearance. Because what's going on nowadays, we put a, a, prime, a, a premier thing on the outward appearance. See, that's what culture does. It, puts, it just emphasizes this more than anything else, I think. Appearances can be and often are deceiving. Think transgender. Regardless of what a person does, to his or her body does not change the fact 
that God has assigned every person exactly one sex at the moment of conception, male or female. This is what God has done. That's the science, is it not? We always talk about got to obey the science, got to go with the science. But that's what the science says. And the fact is, we cannot go past our chromosome. But because we live in a fallen world, there are those rare occasions where persons are born with what's called Klinefelter syndrome, hermaphrodite, right? We, we know this. Literally, every cell in our body has either XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. That's it. And no amount of bodily modification can change that. We need to let God tell us who we are. Focusing on external appearances can also apply to people in the ministry. Think Robbie Zacharias. He was raised in a Hindu home, a Hindu home. He was he embraced the Christian gospel as a teenager. He dove into the area of apologetics, defending the Christian faith against all kinds of competing and opposing worldviews. And eventually Zacharias became world renowned. But for all the good that he did, he lived a double life for many years. It was confirmed that he committed many acts of moral failure. Now that Robbie Zacharias has passed away from cancer, he's on the other side, and he too will have his day standing before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of his life. My point is that anybody can make things look different on the outside than what's on the inside. Isn't that true? False teachers who were making great headway into the hearts and minds of the Corinthians certainly made themselves look very attractive. But the truth of the matter is that truth is the heart of the matter. Remember how David, in his confession of adultery and murder in Psalm 51, he told the Lord how that the, he knew that the Lord desired truth in the inward parts, in the heart. See, it is the heart that God sees. It is the heart where truth is to be deposited. And when truth is there, it will come out. It will be manifest in a person's life. It will show itself externally. See, when we come to our own reformation, right? Think, you know, New Year's resolutions. We work from the outside in. But what does God do? He works from the inside out. And the bottom line for Paul is regarding the false teachers is that they, all they focus on is outward appearance. Then there is real, uh, no real life there. All they have, Paul seems to say, is nothing more than what's on a typical movie set, <laughs> if movies were a thing back then. See, it looks good in front of the camera, but what's behind those makeshift walls? Nothing of substance. And now that Paul reminded the Corinthians of who he was, let's now take a brief look at the all-important ministry that the Lord gave Paul and us as Christians, the ministry of reconciliation. As we do, we're going to see several dimensions of this incredible ministry that the Lord gave Paul and, again, gave all of us if we know Christ. First, let me remind us, though, of what reconciliation is. It's a reestablishment of friendly relationships after the relationship has been broken. In terms of best friends, it's that moment when the two of you, you know, have things squared away and then you embrace and go out for a meal. Or 
in a marriage, it's when you make up after a period of fighting over finances or the kids. And with God, it's a restoration of an estranged relationship or more precisely, a resurrection of a dead relationship. See, Paul describes every person this way at one point or another. We were all dead at one time. We were all completely separated from God because God is holy and we're sinful. But as tragic as that is, it wasn't that way from the beginning. Remember how God, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, walked with the first couple in perfect fellowship he had with them. And we know the story, don't we? We know what happened. We don't have to go through it. But ever since then, the Lord has been working his plan to enact a way for us to be reconciled to him. But as we see from Genesis chapter 4 all the way through, right? And over and over again, things did not work out the way that he wanted. In our separation from him, we continued to go our own way. But at the right time, the father sent his son. He, as the lamb of God, Messiah, lived a perfect life as God-man, uniquely qualified to take away the sin of the world. He suffered. He died. He rose again. He ascended to the father's right hand. And what is he doing now? He's interceding for us. Jesus Christ is praying for his people right now. You know, how, how quickly do we tire of prayer? What's the Lord Jesus doing? He's continually praying for us. I thank the Lord for this. How we need to have our prayer muscles strengthened, right? We need to. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus has given to his church, again, every one of his disciples, the ministry of reconciliation. It's one where we work with the Lord and we seek out the sinners and give them the great news that our God reigns, that our Lord died in our place and rose again. And we have the awesome opportunity to tell them, to give them the opportunity. You too can get right with God. You can be reconciled to him as you repent of your sin, as you embrace the gospel, Christ. But now with that said, let's briefly look at the several dimensions of the ministry of reconciliation. And the first uh, dimension is love and life. Love and life. Let's look at verses 14 and 15, 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Notice the truth and the attack in this life and love dimension. Paul answers his critics who accuse him of being out of his mind. Paul says, no, no, I'm, in my, I'm perfectly in my right mind. What appears to be insanity to you is simply this. I'm radically saved. What got hold of Paul was the love that Christ had for him. And as a result, the love that Paul had for Christ. It is a relationship between two persons. The ultimate person in the universe has offered to have a relationship with us. Isn't it an amazing thing? The spiritual fact of life is that Christ died for everybody. You know, he didn't exclude anyone. 
There's no one outside of, of his death that did, that didn't cover. He died for everybody. That's the extent of his love. He paid the price for everyone's sin. Paul was totally affected by the death of the Messiah. In a simple sentence, Christ died for me, changed everything about the apostle. It reminds me of the time when Jesus had dinner at a Pharisee's house. You may remember the story. Though Jesus was Simon's guest in his own home, Simon afforded none of the common gestures of hospitality. It was a huge diss to Jesus. This man did not, did not respect Jesus at all. And then a woman came in, morally dirty, but desperate. One look at Jesus is all it took. She began to sob, so much so that her free-flowing tears were enough to wash Jesus' feet. She dried his feet with her hair. She anointed his feet with perfume. And the end of the, of the encounter went something like this. Because this woman recognized the depth of her sin and was forgiven, she was able to show great love. And Jesus also gave the other side by saying this. He was forgiven little, shows only a little love. Paul understood the depth of his sin as much as a human could. That's why he was able to do what he did. That's why he was able to love Jesus and love others the way that he loved them. He sacrificed his life for Christ because he knew he was forgiven much, and therefore he was able to love much. He never got over the wonder of God's forgiveness. And because he was forgiven much, Paul was able to love Jesus and others much. And I wonder how it is with you and with me. Could it be that we don't love the way we should it's because we don't know the depth of our sin? Could it be that we treat our own sin too lightly and therefore conclude that we really don't need the forgiveness of God very much? May the Lord help us to recognize the depth of our own depravity and then in tears, weep over our sin. And then, as a result of that, loyally obey the Lord out of gratitude for what He's done for us. For after all, He who has forgiven much loves much. The second dimension of the ministry of reconciliation is found in verses 16 and 17. Recon repentance and power. Repentance and power. Verses 16 and 17. And Paul says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Don't you love those verses? Isn't that great? Now, this is a huge thing for Paul. And in our day for us as well, because the question is, who is Jesus? Everybody seems to got their own idea about who Jesus is. Scripture tells us that he's the God-man, that he is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity made flesh. But there's a time in Paul's life when he didn't believe that. 
There was a time when, when Paul saw this itinerant preacher upsetting the establishment, causing a great fuss, proclaiming that his way of Torah is right, while the scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites. He may have even bought into the idea of Jesus being an illegitimate child. That was a thing back then. That was a meme that many people held to. Because after all, who could buy that Holy Spirit overshadowed me and became pregnant story, right? And as long as Paul only saw Jesus as a mere human, he was cut off from the power of a changed life. But on the road to Damascus, as Paul encountered the risen Christ, everything changed. See, for Paul, he went from death to life. Paul spent his entire adult life up to that point longing to be right with God, waiting for God's power and strength to live the way that God wanted him to live. After all, Paul was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And when Paul repented of his sin, of unbelief in the identity of Jesus, what happened? It opened the door for Paul to declare his old life to be dead. And new things have come. Things have changed very little since then. Would you agree? Ever notice that those who refuse to believe the testimony about Jesus as found in Scripture almost always deny the authority of Scripture in just about every other area of life? Ever notice that? See, the huge areas such as, where did we come from? Did God make us or did time plus chance plus matter make us? Who are we? Male or female or 65 other genders? What is our purpose in life? What's our ultimate destiny? See, the bottom line is that we must get to the truth about who Jesus is. We must get that right. And then we can experience new birth and therefore have eternal life. After all, didn't Jesus say something about eternal life? He said eternal life is knowing God and Christ, the one the Father sent. A third dimension of the ministry of reconciliation is reconciliation and transformation. And this is found in verses 18 to 21. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack. We could spend the entire next couple of hours. But let me just say this. God reconciles us to himself through Christ for a reason. God reconciles us to himself through Christ that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The reconciliation of God means simply this, that we are reconciled with God. God is not reconciled with us. It is we who need to go to him. He does not need to come to us. In other words, it's not God who changes. When we're reconciled with God, who changes? We do. We change. See, we must go His way. 
If we want to be reconciled to God, if we want to have that relationship with God, it is we who must repent. It is we who must change. It is we who must go His way. See, when we're reconciled to God through Christ, our lives will be on a path to transformation, lives that will look more and more like Jesus. It will be scandalous, though, in any other way as we think about this. It took the death of Christ to offer us reconciliation with God. The cross shows us how God thinks and feels about sin. Think about this. We hear God so loved the world, yes. But what was happening on that cross? All of our sin was placed upon Him. To see His Son there with the garbage of the world on His perfect shoulders, taken into His perfect heart, swallowing the cup of His damnation to the nations, and then for us to say, well, yo, hey, I'm glad it happened to Jesus. And now I'm free. I can go do what I want because after all, I got freedom. How revolting is that? We step back in revolt. But if our lives were to be on constant display in heaven, like one of those electronic billboards at Times Square, what would that display? Would it be the freedom in Christ notion? Or would it be, I'm accepted in Christ because he was condemned instead of me? See, the purpose of salvation is that we might die to self and live to Jesus. We have the power to do that because God writes His ways on our hearts. We have the incentive to live God's ways because the Holy Spirit lives within us. As ambassadors of our King, we are to live. We are to act as though we are living in alien territory to represent the Lord Jesus, showing those outside the kingdom what life in the kingdom really is like. And we have the privilege to say to all those who listen, be reconciled to God. And this is what Paul did with the Corinthians, with the Corinthian Christians. Listen to this again. We implore you, Corinthians, on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, why would Paul say this to these people who are supposed to be reconciled to God? Could it be? that they started out in a right relationship with the Lord, saved by His grace, following Jesus, and then the false teachers came in and stole their hearts and minds away? How many have done that over the years? Do you know anybody like that? Either through being exposed to false teaching or being convinced that God just accepts me of however I live, it's okay. How many have left the fellowship of Christ? several years ago when we were going through the letter of Hebrews. Remember that? A long time ago. I described apostasy as getting divorced from Jesus. Now, this is not the time or place to discuss the Calvinism Armenian debate. Okay, we're not going to do that today. I am convinced, though, that God has given us the dignity of choice, of relationship. We can choose. Remember how God Himself and the apostles and, 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 and all throughout the prophets said this, in essence, choose you this day whom you will serve. You need to choose, he says. As I see it, there are too many scriptures that indicate 
that though we can't lose salvation, God's not going to take it from us. We can deliberately forfeit it, though. We can get divorced from Jesus. And I believe that this is what was looming large in Paul's mind and heart. That's why he told the Corinthian church, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But as the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 6, 9 to 12, he says, though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for us in His name, serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope till the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We have begun with Christ. Let's move on to maturity in Christ, clinging to Him, not listening to the false teachers of the day, not having the attitude that says, hey, I can do what I want because now I have freedom in Christ. No, we are servants of His. We are to die to ourselves and live to righteousness. This is the ministry of reconciliation. And so as we conclude the message today, let me quote a great, great song in honor of Carmen, who passed away a couple weeks ago. Now, as we know, Carmen sang a lot of songs which put radical Christianity to the music. Now, radical to the world, and maybe to lukewarm Christians, but in actuality, Carmen put the normal Christian life to music. Remember how the false teachers labeled Paul? Label Paul? Remember how Jesus' own half-siblings called him crazy? And when we live our lives to the glory of God conspicuously, we are going to get treated the same way. Let's wear the names the world calls us as badges of honor. You with me on that? Carmen's song, Radically Say, goes like this. Now, I don't agree with everything in his lyrics, but I agree with a lot of it. So listen to these words. Again, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to say it. Jesus Christ is Lord, and God is on the throne. There's power in the blood, and I'm saved to the bone. The devil comes against me. He's going to feel some pain. He's going to, I can bind him, bruise him, cast him out by the power of Jesus' name. No longer on the outside. On the inside, I now stand. I'm sold out the whole route, completely born again. I believe on the third day, Jesus, he rose from the grave. The world thinks I'm crazy but I'm radically saved, yeah. Choose you this day. Tell me who you will serve. Now is the time to stand up. Got to let your voice be heard. You got to come out from among the rest. You got to tell the gospel tale. You tell them, black is black, white is white, hell is hot, and sin ain't right. God is holy and Christ is coming, and righteousness will prevail. Tell it to you once. I tell it to you twice. The only thing that's going to change this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me add, person to person to person. Wimpy saints won't survive in spiritual warfare. Amen? If you know that Jesus is the only way, let me hear somebody say, yeah. Yeah, right. On the inside now we stand. 
I'm sold out the whole route. Is anybody here born again? I believe that on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. The world thinks we're crazy. Our friends think we're crazy. Our family thinks we're crazy. But you know what? We're just radically saved. It's been said, I'm a fool for Christ. And the question is, whose fool are you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for a reason to live. Lord Jesus, you died for us that we might die to ourselves and live for righteousness, to live unto you, Lord. Lord, you've called us out of the world. We are no longer of the world. We're in it. But you've called us to give a faithful witness of you to it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to live the normal Christian life, which will appear to so many people as being radical. I pray, Lord, that regardless of the names that were called, and sometimes, Lord, regardless of the actions that people um, put upon us, and perhaps even uh, some things that uh, are not very pleasant. I think about our brothers and sisters in Kenya, as we're praying for this week, and all around the world. Lord, people are suffering persecution because they dare to name your name. And Lord, we know the persecution is here at our shores. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives faithfully, loyally to you. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible testimony that Paul had. Lord, he, is, he, he, he realized the depth of his sin. He spent the rest of his days loving you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to adopt that very ministry of reconciliation that he gave Paul, that, he gave, that you gave all of us. Lord, enable us to find people who need so desperately to hear the gospel who need so desperately to see the gospel lived out in a faithful Christian. Help us, Lord, to be that faithful Christian. Help us, Lord, to love you more and to serve you better because you loved us first. I pray now, Lord, that you'll help us uh, as, as we turn our attention to our singing and also to our giving. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to, to do these things as an act of a worship, an act of obedience, because we love you. Lord, help us to accept um, or help, I pray, Lord, that you will accept, I should say, our worship of you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.